0: To create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a really interesting book, a really important book um, that is maybe unfortunately, but certainly interestingly, quite close to a lot of political debates today. And as we're going to hear, kind of has been for much longer than we might think. Um, The book is titled The Fascis, A History of Ancient Rome's Most Dangerous Political Symbol, published by Oxford University Press. And I have with us the author, Dr. Corey Brennan, who really in this book gives us a global, gives us an incredibly long and important history. Um, by long, I mean the time period he covers. This is actually quite a readable book about where, what are the fascists, um, and why is this still so relevant to our politics today? So Corey, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a great honor. And um, it's the first interview I've done about the book. So mm. this is, uh, this is all new.
2: Well, then I think we, even more than we usually do, need to start off with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this.
1: Oh, certainly. My name's, well, as you heard, Corey Brennan, and um am um, for the last 24 years, I've been teaching Roman history at the, uh, State University of New Jersey, Rutgers, and, um, uh, I was not intending to write this book. Uh, I've most of my work has been on sort of political institutions. And my most recent book before this one was the biography as it were of, uh, Hadrian's wife, the Empress Sabina. Um, uh, and that came out in 2018. And, um, However, though, it was, I was watching television in August of 2017, and I was shocked to see in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, this rally called Unite the Right, which had, it was an assembly, it was like a Woodstock of hate groups that had come from all over the United States, and I couldn't believe I was seeing with my own eyes. And I was also taking a look at their flags and their emblems, and I noticed at least one group that had the fascists, and not just the fascist that, you know, one sees, for example, on the back of the old U.S. dime, et cetera. This was specifically the fascist as was used by Mussolini when he was running a Nazi puppet state from 1943 to 1945, the Republic of Salo. I because I'm very interested in the World War II era as well, and sort of the, well, the fascist um, um, period. And so, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was not just the fascists, which is, you know, provocative enough, but specifically taking the darkest possible use of the fascists and putting it on a sort of banner and t-shirt. And um, that prompted me to write the book. Um, It was indignation and the feeling that I could actually do something useful. I could actually contribute something uh, to this discourse.
2: Thank you for giving us that backstory. Um, And I think that answer kind of sets up very nicely the the idea of the contribution, because of course, you, I think many people were watching this on TV, um, but I don't think necessarily everyone watching had that same identification that you did of, oh, I know what that symbol is and where it came from. Obviously, being a professor in Roman history very much helped you with that. But for those of us who are not experts in Roman history. Can you please briefly introduce us to the fasci so that we can join you in that recognition and like, whoa, what's happening here? What are the fasci? What did they look like? Who used them and for what purposes?
1: Well, it's um, it's an unfamiliar symbol. And this is something that uh, today, and this is what, you know, uh, uh, some of these folks have used when you can call plausible deniability. Um, uh, it's both not very well known and also there's been lots of legitimate uses of the symbol over the years, as we'll see, but it, in essence it's a bundle of wooden rods uh, with leather straps with a, a single-bladed axe sticking out. And they're called the fasces because it's related to the Latin word for bundle. And in essence It's a mobile kit for punishment, Um, and uh, it was meant to show that authority, who would not carry them, attendants called lictors uh, would carry these um, fasces, these bundles, and it was a way to indicate authority, but also the readiness to, I mean, each element. The sticks, the leather strap, and the axe could be used um, to inflict corporal punishment—beating with the sticks, and uh, tying someone up—and then beheading them—capital um, um, punishment. So, as you might imagine, uh, and they were used in this way. Uh, they, this was—it was not merely theoretical. It was—they—it was a there's instances, uh, many instances uh, attested from ancient Rome in which they were used, especially outside of Rome. And so as a result, they induced not just respect, but positive fear.
2: I mean, that description, even that brief description, sounds pretty terrifying. So now that we have kind of a sense of what they are um, and and why they made such an impact then, I think that really helps us kind of get into understanding what was happening in ancient Rome. And then hopefully you can help us understand kind of how we ended up with them on TV the way that we saw it. So... Staying with um, ancient Rome, given that use case, um, and obviously the fear that it comes with, when did people see the fasces? What was the sort of system for display? And to what extent was this kind of a super fixed thing that anyone in the world of ancient Rome at any point would have recognized? Or was this kind of very specific to a particular period or a particular place, and it would have looked very different, you know, even 50 or 100 years somewhere else?
1: Mm, no, they were ubiquitous. Uh, they were, mm. in fact, um, that any subject uh, of ancient Rome, whether in the Republican period or the Imperial period, would recognize this. They and they were hated. And um, to move toward the end of the story, or toward the end of the story, in the first century CE, um, late first century CE, we actually have the number of people who were in the sort of union, the professional association, that carried these fascis, the lictors, and they numbered 370. And um, so if you have 370 folks spread out both in Rome itself, but also across the empire, carrying these in front of um, uh, Rome's magistrates. And um, so everyone had, a, had an idea what they were. They weren't depicted that often um, on coins. In fact, actually, it seems to have been such an unpopular symbol that the Romans of almost every age avoided using the fasces um on their coins but in their art um that they're they're they can be seen everyone in the ancient world uh knew the symbol and not just for 100 years or 200 years they had a history of you can argue um 2100 years um and I, how do i get to 2100 years they started with the etruscans um rome's not so friendly neighbors to the north and uh it was a, a symbol of Etruscan kingship. And um, the Romans then adapted that because there was at least two Etruscan kings of Rome, but the Romans, uh, when they chucked the kings out of Rome and the traditional dates, 509 BCE, they they took the fasces. But the Etruscans had a double-headed ax to um, symbolize uh, their king's power. And the Romans who got away from a unitary king and divided the power of the king into two, Um, gave a single-headed axe to two individuals, each of whom had the power of the king. And that, starting in 509, lasts in one form or another, believe it or not, down to the year 1453 CE uh, with the fall of Byzantium. Because even if we go to the 14th and early 15th century, we see Byzantine kings parading with 12 attendants, um, Vikings in this case, um, uh, with axes. So the... The the symbol, and it's always a factor of six, um, uh, uh, has really sort of persisted. It's had an incredible, incredible run. I mean, literally, um, uh, uh, well, all, you know, over two millennia.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm struggling to think of anything that has that sort of lasting power that we might recognize today. Um, and it really is quite kind of hard to wrap our heads around. Um, so in fact, to make sure that we can wrap our heads around it, because I don't think we could just kind of assume that we know what that feels like. Can you tell us a bit more about how audiences, how people watching these parades received the fascis, um, given the time period, but also maybe you could speak to the geographic range of the symbol?
1: Certainly, well, the ge- I mean, it starts in Rome and there were uh, protocols about how the fasces were used in Rome and outside of Rome. We're told at the very beginning of the Republic, in the year 509, the very first year, legislation was passed that um, the two heads of state, known as consuls, uh, had to remove the axes from the fasces when in the city of Rome because uh, Roman citizens had the right of appeal against capital punishment. Uh, However, outside the city, in this, when I'm saying outside the city, not very far outside the city, I mean, where the pantheon is today, you could put the axes back in. And um, so it's only in the sacred core of the city that the axes had to be removed. And they spread out. Um, uh, anyone who f- saw a Roman governor, uh, once they started the territorial provinces in Sicily or Sardinia, and then then the Spains, North Africa, later Macedonia, and, and, and the list goes on, would have been acquainted with the fasces And it was eventually was not just regular magistrates, uh, of the Roman state, but special magistrates, people were given extraordinary powers. Um, even eventually, by the end of the Republic, the priestesses, known as the Vestal Virgins, um, had a lictor with an axe and fasces. Well, with with the fasces precede them, and the list goes on. And then, obviously, once Rome's emperors came in with Augustus and later emperors, they had to be fitted into the scheme. They got the full complement of fasces. Um, we're told that some of Rome's empresses. Um, uh, also i mean i think they all had had a attendant at least with one fasces but we're we're told that uh, in time already in the first century ce uh, empresses got them so they so they were ubiquitous so anyone who saw a roman official um of a certain level uh knew all about the fasces and um they were hated. I mean, we're we told this specifically by you know it, it was not a popular symbol. People did not cheer when they saw the fascists. It was a, um, a, a meant to sort of uh, terrify people, and uh, we have lots and lots of evidence on the psychic effect um, uh, of the fascists. So it was um, it worked as a symbol for. Um, Uh, For Rome, and it set a tone for Rome's political culture. And because the possibility of punishment, um, horrible punishment, was never too far around the corner.
2: So reading up to this point in the book, I was a surprised we had kind of mostly forgotten about this. Um, given the amount of time that the symbol is around, the spread of it, how frequently it would have been visible. And also, as you just said, the psychic impact of it. It's like, well, goodness, how could we have forgotten such a thing? Um, but I was even more surprised to then read that as we move further away from the ancient Roman period, it's we we forget about it, but also we add new meanings. We add new symbolic aspects to the fasces that don't seem to have a lot of connection to ancient Rome which again given how kind of prevalent and embedded these ideas were seems sort of odd to me so I'm wondering if you can explain for us how when and why the fascists came to have additional meanings that aren't related to the story you've told us so far yeah th- this was something
1: that I wasn't really aware of, um, I mean, how you got from point A to point B and which is the fasces as a symbol of unity, because it was a very non-Roman concept. You see this, you know, it's ubiquitous now um, that uh, the fasces connote unity and authority. And um, however, the way this came out was really by chance and was in the Renaissance. And there's in Aesop, as in Aesop's fables, there's a tale of an, a father an aged father who had quarreling sons and he picked up a bundle of sticks and he showed that, uh, he could easily break each individual stick. But if you bound them together, uh, in a clump, they were impossible to break. And this was meant to be a parable to his quarrelsome sons that if they stick together, they're, you know, invincible. But if they, um, are factious and quarrel with each other that they're easily broken and, but that's Aesop. And it was really in the Renaissance, really around the year 1500, that folks started putting the two together, t- totally unrelated, the fable of a bundle of sticks uh, and uh, the Roman fasces. In the 15th century with the re- Renaissance, I mean, sorry, the U- Renaissance humanism, um, there was a general awareness of what the fasces were. And it starts creeping into art in the late 15th, early 16th century. Raphael has a famous depiction of um, lictors with the fasces. But the idea of unity really comes into play really starting in the mid-16th century, and then it explodes. Um, starting, if we can actually pinpoint precisely uh, when this happens, and it has to do with a very, very influential book in 1593 by someone called Cesare Ripa, R-I-P-A, and uh, it was a sort of dictionary or encyclopedia of iconology. And it's a compilation of emblems. And um, he depicts, he says, here's how, and has enormous, enormous influence on 17th century art, but uh, especially allegorical um, representations. But in this book, he presents both justice and also Concord uh, with a bundle of sticks. And pretty soon there was an illustrated version, and this makes an enormous, enormous uh, 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 impact. And then it becomes—I mean—to cut to the chase—really sort of generalized. I mean, it's used the fascies as a symbol of love because it's you know unity or um, it, of equality because all the sticks are a sort of uh, a equal size. And um, and then it eventually just becomes a very generalized um, sort of. Um, emblem for um, authority in general, especially, you know, magistrates. And then under the neoclassical period, it really even loses that sort of, um, in the 18th century, loses even that meaning where it's just used as a decorative element and wallpaper and the like, just to, you know, connote the past or the Roman past. So it becomes really watered down.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Huh.
2: Which is really, really interesting, given what you told us about in the ancient Roman world. Um, but given that kind of progression that you've just described, um, the watered-down, the neoclassical, the um, sort of con- idea of authority, but also unity, it's not hugely surprising then, if we're already talking about sort of the 1700s, um, that this does end up in the political life of what becomes the United States. Can you tell us about what that looks like specifically? How was the symbol used?
1: Yeah, the the turning point, this is a really good question. The turning point is the year, specifically the year 1789. And it is both in France and also the United States Constitution's 1789. And that where um, the, the fascist takes on a, a, new, a, a new life. Um, and as sort of... Um, First of all, just let's well, the French. Um, they chose the fascis uh, as a symbol of their movement's strength and power, commitment to justice, unity, and um, also th- this is a sort of a nod to the old. Um, uh, Roman Republic, a dependence on the assent of the people, because we're told that the power of the fasces in ancient Rome really resided in that of the people. And there was a tradition that uh, Roman officials would dip the fasces toward the people in an organized assembly. So the, the notion is that the power of the fasces really comes ultimately from the people. I mean, it's the it's the symbol of magistrates, but the power of magistrates is because it's vested in the people. So, um, these folks in revolutionary France really knew their classical sources really well, and, um, they gave a new point to it. And then it becomes, it eventually becomes, and this is a first, the semi-official, um, seal or symbol of the French revolutionary state. Meanwhile, in the United States, um, folks were really taken with it old Aesop story about the unity. And um, there was a, and how it, it sort of crept into American political discourse, but the Latin motto, A Pluribus Unum, one for many. Um, uh, the idea that the 13 original colonies of um, uh, England and North America, if they grouped together, they would be invincible. Um, uh, the fascists became a, um, you know, it became a symbol also of this. I mean, it's, again, this this sort of the idea of strength for unity. And I can instantly tell, you know, from a piece of furniture or the like, if it's an American fasci's because there'll be thirteen rods. This is this you can always count the rods, and so uh, the idea of fasci's with thirteen rods is is the the American fasci's. So this, but it's completely independent. The French and um, uh, the Americans and both use them as as symbols. Um, Napoleon, not so much. I mean, Napoleon sort of turned his back on it, but um, the in the 1790s, the fascists are everywhere. I mean, they're they're um, in every imaginable um, sort of possible context, including building enormous models of fascies and the, and the like. In the United States, a little less so, um, but we're seeing it already uh, uh, as a sort of debated as a possible symbol for the thirteen rebellious British colonies. Um, Thomas Jefferson was very taken by the Aesop version of the story, um, but re- the official decision by the new, new U.S. Congress in August 1776 to adopt a pluribus unum, you know, out of many one as a national motto, that sealed the deal for the fascist, so to speak. After After 1776, it was practically inevitable that the fascist was going to become part of the American um, sort of repertoire of symbols.
2: Huh. Really interesting to hear about that in the U.S. and, of course, in France as well. Um, It stays then, given that kind of embeddedness in the U.S., it it stays there. But you do talk about in the book a, quote, dramatic escalation of fascist imagery when we get to the 1860s. Mm. Why and to what extent are these still the fascists we're seeing now?
1: Yeah there was a there was two different um stages in this. Um first of all um after 1776 after 1789 the fascists really took off. Um and because a lot of America's early leaders uh and architects and artists they knew a lot about classical antiquity. Um, But they also had one eye about what was happening in France and what was happening in Britain. And there was a number of European artists that were doing very important work um, in the U.S. capital or as medalists or the like. So the fascists were were pretty much um, hardwired into American political iconography already by the 1820s, 1830s. But then there's even more because when the question of slavery in the United States uh, comes to the forefront and extremely acrimonious in the 1840s and 1850s, um, It become, the fascist becomes on the one hand a sort of a plea for unity, but also it was taken, at least by folks in the southern future secessionist states, as a, um, a symbol of abolitionism and um, pro-abolitionism. And as such, we see a fight in the 1850s about, you know, uh, with the design of the U.S. Capitol building, um, There, it, there's a... On the crown of the uh, of the of the cupola of the of the Capitol, there's a really really interesting use of the fascists, um, which was fought by no other. I mean Jefferson Davis, for example, um, uh, he uh, he was looking. He was in charge of um, the sort of the architectural extensions of the Capitol building and uh, he bitterly opposed uh, the use of the fasces. but on the cupola of the fascie of, of the of the Capitol is a depiction of bent fasces. the sticks are sort are bent and that is sort of combining the Roman Elm emblem with the Aesopian idea that even under extreme stress the fasces will not break the bound and this is the sort of the symbol of unity. And then the climax of all this was in 1857 when um, the House of Representatives is sort of remodeled and actual fascists, uh framing the speaker's platform on both the left and right are introduced and they're still there. They're, in, in fact, um, not the original ones from 1857, but a, in fact, even larger version and more prominent version, which was done in 1950. So it's a symbol of union, but it's also implicitly and was taken very much as such. And I detail this all, all in the book uh, as a symbol of abolitionism. So I can't understand the folks that say, um, to cut to the chase, uh, get rid of those fascists in the House of Representatives. I, every day, every day on what used to be known as Twitter, now known as X, every single day, there's someone who discovers that there's fascists in the um, House of Representatives. They said, take them down. And thinking that this was installed as a sort of a secret message about, um, you know, the fascist leanings of the United States government, but it has nothing to do with it. It, it, it. In fact, actually, it's a it's a symbol of unity and by extension, abolitionism.
2: OK, but something happened between then and now such that people are making these calls. So can we talk about kind of where that um, aspect of it comes from, which I think pretty obviously is Mussolini, Um Why was he so obsessed with the fascists? I mean, you go in so far as to say that he tried to bring them into, quote, every crevice of Italian public and private life. I mean, what was the big deal with the fascists for Mussolini? And to what extent were his efforts to do this successful?
1: Um, Yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely intriguing. I would say that when Mussolini came to power in a coup d'etat of 1922, that the fascists was a much better symbol just in general worldwide than it is now. And uh, not due to Mussolini, but for example, in the Lincoln Memorial, which was dedicated by coincidence in 1922, but the, the sculpture of uh, the seat at Lincoln with his hand on um, a, a chair in which the arms are made out of fasces. And then there's fasces all over the Lincoln Memorial. This was done before anyone knew there was going to be something called Italian fascism. But the story the, of Muslim and the fascist fascis is, is, is interesting, and I never really saw it laid out. But in outline, it goes something like this. This is the 32nd version. That in Italian political vocabulary, since the 1890s, there's something known as fasci. And fasci are a sort of a loosely um, bundles. I mean, basically, they're... Uh, people who may have different political ideologies, but are sort of bound together by a common goal. And there was a pejorative term for these people, which we see already in Italian newspapers in the 1890s. They're called fascists, fascisti. But it was always pejorative. I mean, uh, and it means revolutionaries or people causing trouble or bucking against the status quo. Well, Mussolini, um, uh, in starting around 1915, actually a little later, um, uh, decided to use the tag fascisti for his own followers. I mean, he had something called the Italian fasci of combat, and he proudly appropriated the, the name f- fascisti. And, but as far as actually using the symbol, the fascist, that came surprisingly late, it was only in the run-up to a general election of 1919 uh, that he used it for branding. And it was a way for people to identify that there was a fascist in profile that looked very much like a French revolutionary fascist with the X on the top, um, that uh, to so people could identify his party members on the ballot. And then it really takes on a life of its own in the years 1920, 21. But in 1922, very early, right after the March on Rome, right, which was late October of 1922, that brought Mussolini to power as prime minister, one of the first things he does in November, weeks after coming into power, is to um, Uh, to make sure that the fascists get on coins. Now, one thing I've done, there's a lot of footage, a lot of the March on Rome of the 28th through the 30th of October. And I went frame by frame. I I don't know how long it took me, but just seeing how many people used the fascists as a symbol, you know, on their their military cars or their... And it's extreme. There is some, but it's not ubiquitous. And um, however... Uh, as a branding technique uh, and to sort of give a sort of unitary sort of uh, identity symbol to his movement, in November, things really step up and they start already saying, how can we get this onto the coins, but also onto cigarette packaging, which was then a state monopoly? How about postage stamps, all sorts of small media? And it was a way to just constantly, so any contemporary Italian could not reach in their pocket, whether for a cigarette or for spare change or stamps, without seeing um, uh, the fascis. And there was a lot of, a, I spent a lot of time in the book on one fringe group of occultists who basically said, um, you know, we have a spiritually supercharged fascis with a real Etruscan axe head on it. And, you know, thinking that this was going to give some sort of charismatic power to Mussolini, there's a lot of jostling, but the ploy didn't work. And But by summer 1923, um, we see uh, the fascis on coins, and then something bizarre happens. It's not just small media, but it is everywhere. In fact, entire buildings, the Florence train station, um, f- as seen from the air, resembles a fascis. And Mussolini, you know, explicitly, complimented for doing so. Also, one thing that has not been noticed is Stazione Ostienza, which was built for Hitler's visit in 1938 is the shape of a fascist. But there was a competition in 1932 to build a new fascist party headquarters where people were tripping over each other. Who could put the largest fascist, one model had a fascist towering over the Colosseum itself. It was meant to be next door to the Colosseum. um, But then that was not enough for Mussolini. If I can go on, he took the word "lictor." First of all, uh, uh, what what the way Mussolini interpreted the fascists was not in the standard way that people had done for the previous twenty eight hundred years. What he did was to say that it's a symbol of unity by means of authority. I mean, everyone else had it the other way around, um, but unity by means imposing unity <laughs> by means of authority. And um, then he chose a very unlikely subject. The lictor, and um, the lictor is the humble attendant, usually freed slaves in ancient Rome that would carry the fasces. It was boring work. It was hard work. These things were heavy. It was just tedious. Uh, they had a certain amount of pride, but um, and I sh- I talk about the lictors in antiquity and how there was some social mobility, but it was it was not a glamorous job. And he um, glorified the lictor, saying that Italians should take the place of the lictor in carrying the fasces. And so, it's, again, it's subservience, you know, to the state. Then he uses the word um, literale, which is an adjective he made up, uh, which means litter like And that becomes a, for competitions, uh, or based every, everything, there's the Italian National Airline becomes alla Littoria. Um, there's a town called Littoria, you know, it, so L-I-T-T-O-R-I-A and so the not just the the symbol of the fasces but also the symbol of the lictor and this is this is the a first this like no one ever had glorified the lictor before mussolini
2: this is so interesting to kind of see in such quick comparison obviously we're not doing the detail in the book justice but hopefully we're giving a highlight sense of it to to see all these changes of meaning and adaptations kind of in close comparison. So thank you for taking us through um, Mussolini and kind of what he's doing within Italy. Can you now explain to us kind of what were people's reactions to this outside of it? Like did did it make people go to the Lincoln Memorial and go hang on a second this is now a very different symbol or what? what impact did it have?
1: it was slow in coming. It was very interesting to see in the 1930s in New Deal, the United States. And one of my regrets I should say about this book is that I had this idea that um, uh, I was going to do a global history of the fascists And look, I mean, I collected evidence from Morocco, from Vietnam, from, I mean, I had, I did the research for the entire world. But in writing it up, uh, I really could only focus on Italy, France, and the United States, so I didn't get to Great Britain, except in a very tangential way, or the Commonwealth, et cetera. So I'm just speaking what happened in the United States. Um, in the United States, um, there people doubled down because um, it had been a legitimate American symbol, political symbol, since you know the days of the Declaration of Independence, and uh, so the idea rather than saying, well, Mussolini has brought the fascis into play, so we're going to abandon it. No, rather, they doubled down because on every American dime at that point that had been minted after 1916, the fascis was depicted. And so everyone, you know, or many people had uh, coins in their pocket with the fascis and that continued to be minted, they didn't stop that. Um, But also on New Deal architecture, um, uh, the fascis proliferate in the United States. And uh, there's it, it very, very hard to find any federal building that was built in the 1930s, and there's plenty, or federal building outside, you know, federal courthouses outside of Washington, D.C. that do not have fascis on them. So it's playing spot the fascis in, in D.C., especially for the 1930s. It was only with Italy's declaration of war um, on the United States that things sort of changed. And in the 1940s, there's a debate about you know, should we be getting rid of this dime? Or, um, you know, uh, how appropriate is this as a symbol? And at the first breathing space, which was in late 1945, it was decided to get rid of the fascies on the dime. And a new dime was introduced to honor the recently deceased President Roosevelt. And there's a fascist-like um torch on it. They call it a liberty torch, but it really has some of the attributes of a fascis. And uh, and then after 1945, 1946, um, you really don't see anyone putting up new fascis. It just doesn't happen anywhere. However, in Italy, they don't take them down either, or if they do it, in a very haphazard and unevenly funded way. So today in Rome, uh, it doesn't take very much effort to, uh, or other Italian cities as well, but Rome is the city I could cite chapter and verse on, uh, to see fascis, um everywhere. Uh, I mean, you're walking over them. In particular, the manhole covers, um, um, I would say a good percentage of them um, uh, still have uh, the fascies on them. They haven't been replaced since the fascist era. So there's no, unlike the swastika in Germany, there is no really concerted effort to um to get rid of the fascists, There's, I mean, there, there's plenty of them um, uh, to be found.
2: Why haven't they been taken away?
1: Well, it's an interesting, I mean, there's some monuments. I mean, for example, one thing that when I first really went to Rome I, for a year, I've lived in Rome for four years, and in 1987 is when I first arrived, one of the things that was the most surprising was to see a 770 ton obelisk uh, at the Foro Italico in Rome, right near where A.S. Roma and Lazio play, right near the soccer uh, stadium, the Stadio Olimpico, uh, with Mussolini's name on it and Fasci's galore. And then to get to the soccer stadium, uh, well, I'm calling it the soccer stadium, but uh, Stadio Olimpico, you have to walk across a um, uh, mosaics in which there are hundreds of Fasci's, and they've you know, never been covered over or torn up or, or the like. And my Italian friends in the 80s, and I thought this was a very strong and compelling um, uh, explanation, is that our democracy is so strong um, that we could keep these symbols up as a reminder of what we went through in the so-called ventennio, the, uh, you know, 1922 to 1945. And uh, we don't have to Eradicate this. And uh, another way was: "This is we Italians. Uh, we forget, but we do not forgive." Uh, that was the uh, that was what one of my friends uh, said. But so you don't have to go very far to see um, uh, explicit symbols of fascism. And the most dense is right near Stadio Olimpico um so it wasn't taken down there was a debate for the 1960 olympics i discussed this in the book about what to do with these symbols and there was a extremely half-hearted uh uh attempt which only really lasted a few days to start chopping out some of the more objectionable stretches of this mosaic floor uh but uh, far right forces in italy um responded by spraying pro Mussolini graffiti uh, all over the center of the city and so there was a standoff and they decided to stop the eradication of the symbols and um, the Olympics went on and may I say what the world reaction was nothing zero mm. there was like no one no one picked up on it I mean mm. there I I I I have a Scholarly interest in the 1960 Rome Olympics. Uh, it's I think it's a real turning point for modernity, and um, the international reaction was muted. No one, uh, no one objected, and um, the official. However, though the official um, movie, uh, film, basically for the Olympics, which is one of the most beautiful films ever made, the Great Olympiad came in 1961. Um, uh, really tries very hard not to show any fascist era um uh memorial and uh, not just fascists but really um there's e- even though the um a good part of the games was carried out in uh structures that Mussolini expressly built uh it doesn't dwell on it
2: hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for taking us through that and allowing sort of the follow-up of why not. Um, I think there's a lot of things, obviously, that readers can take away from this book, um, perhaps at a most like literal level. If you're anywhere near Washington, D.C. or Rome, playing spot the fascies, now you'll know what to look for and what why it's there. But is there anything else you hope readers take away from the book?
1: Yes. I mean, um, one of it is that... Uh, Every I have a routine. Every day, I go on to what was formerly known as Twitter and just to see what people are saying about the fascists. I'm just very interested. Now, okay, full disclosure, I'm interested to see if anyone's talking about my book, either in a positive or negative way. Um, but I'm just interested in seeing. And it is, I'd say the book so far has made zero impact. None. <laughs> like none whatsoever on popular discourse. None. And um, uh, I'm hoping it, it, that people read at least the reviews and um, sort of take away. I mean, for example, one very strong narrative uh, that you see on the Internet with folks promoting this with 75,000, 100,000, 200,000 followers is that the fascies, in fact, were supercharged electromagnetic devices. And one account, which has since blocked me instantly, uh, said the fascies were made out of uranium and that... um, uh, that they were they were used as some sort of proto nuclear power by the Romans, and that's how they you know built their empire. And this gets thousands of likes. This is like, oh, thank you so much for telling us the history that historians are trying to keep from us. Now, I pointed out on this site, and this is something ChatGPT GPT is very good for. I said I'm trying to build fascies with the following dimensions. However, I want to make them out of uranium, and uh, basically, it gave me the answer that a standard Roman fasces made out of uranium leaving aside all the other dangers would weigh 600 kilograms. Now how anyone would an attendant would carry a 600 kilogram fasces is beyond me, but that's how much it would weigh. But this is just, it makes me, well, at first it really bothered me, uh, especially because of the platform these folks have just, I mean, this is fake news with a capital F and capital N. Um, but also, you know, um, uh allowing hate groups to get away with using the fascists i mean in the same way as that was i, I talked about with which charlottesville that's something that i think really has to be stomped on and um it's the it's i mean really and this is what uh the book is about is that um you could get away in the year 2024 with using the fascis because it is such an unfamiliar symbol and people will see it. And then you have the so-called plausible deniability. Said, well, you know, basically, this is just an old French revolutionary symbol or it's an old Roman symbol or it's an old American symbol. But I'd say that, unfortunately, Mussolini made it impossible um, for the symbol to be revived. I don't think it can be brought back in any way, shape or form. I'm not saying take down pre-existing fascis, but on the whole, people have not been putting up New fascis. I can just think of one example. Huh. You want to hear the example? Please. It's on the campus of Princeton University, and a sculpture was put there in two thousand one, which has a five foot fasci on it, and uh, which is it's it's a statue. Of, uh, it's a twin statue. Um, there's one in Paisley in Scotland. It's a it's a very gifted. Uh, Scottish sculptor, neoclassical sculptor called Alexander Stoddard, really one of the greatest neoclassical sculptors of our age. But he he made an attempt, and he explicitly said so, that these symbols should not be kept in the grubby hands of a Mussolini, and uh, or and that Mussolini should not have the last word. So he tries to reintroduce it, but the, he's alone in this. And I, I think, but the thing that's very interesting is that for other reasons, um, folks have raised a lot of controversy about this. Um, uh, I mean, have seen a lot of how controversial the statue of John Witherspoon is. It was found out he was a slaveholder. Uh, and uh, there's folks that want to see, at the very least, the statue contextualized, which I fully agree with, in some cases even taken down. But interestingly enough, no one has recognized the fascists. I w- again, I write about this in the book, that um, I found one Instagram user, who misspells the word fascis. But other than that, there had been no public discourse that the fact that a in 2001, a monumental sculpture right across from Princeton's chapel and library uh, and classics department, for that matter, um, uh, was set up and can go unnoticed. So I just want to raise general awareness. Uh, again, mm. uh, not in a sort of effort to have, you know, Pre-existing art taken down, but to be sort of understood, contextualized, and um, and also for uh, hate groups not to be able to use the symbol Carte Blanche. Hmm.
2: Well, aside from monitoring um, kind of public discourse on this topic, and obviously uh, more people hopefully being aware of all this context from listening to this interview and reading the book, is there anything you might be working on now that this book is out in the world, Um, whether or not it's on the fascis, whether or not it's a book that you'd like to highlight to our listeners?
1: Oh, I'd love to plug it. Um, For the last 14 years, I've been working on a book on a garden park in Rome called the Villa Ludovisi that was largely destroyed. In 1885, um, but it was a 17th century uh, park of incredible size, 61 acres. Um, that there's only two elements that still survive: uh, the U.S. Embassy in Rome uh, is in a former palace that was in this garden, and also a home, which is still as as of today a private residence um, called the Casino dell'Aurora, which has a unique. Caravaggio ceiling painting, the only one he ever did, uh, plus uh, work by 12 other major artists, uh, Domenichino and, and uh, Guercino and, and many others. And um, also, I would argue, a unrecognized sculpture by Michelangelo. And it's r- 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 there's a bit of urgency because the house uh, has been up for judicial auction since January of 2022, and its fate as I speak today is completely uncertain. And so it's about um, uh, this structure that was built on land that once belonged to Julius Caesar, then the gardens of Sallust and became an imperial retreat and then played an outsized sort of role in uh, starting really in the 17th century and then beyond uh, as a must-see spot on the Grand Tour. And um, uh, it's not well known because it's been a private residence, in fact, notoriously difficult to get into at every stage of its history. And um, I've been working with um, Princess Rita Boncompagni Ludovici, a Texan who married um, the head of the family um, and is now widowed. And uh, she and her husband gave me complete access to everything. I mean, the entire house, its archive, um, uh, which was unrecognized. And if you can follow the whole story at villaludovici.org. But I have a book coming out with Princess Rita Bonka by Ludovici on the structure. It's going to be published by Brett Pauls. And the manuscript should have been submitted by now, but in, in a, a very short amount of time, it will be. Uh, and so it's a, it's a story that, that combines uh, lots of different elements and that takes us really in a straight line from the days of Julius Caesar to the present second.
2: Hmm. All right. Well, good luck finishing up that project and getting it out into the world. Um, and in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Fascies: A History of Ancient Rome's Most Dangerous Political Symbol, published by Oxford University Press. Corey, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Oh, Miranda, thank you so much. It's a great honor. And um, what can I say? This is This is a really, really exciting <laughs> moment for me and I'm so glad I was able to chat with you.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office.